This Coin Week podcast is brought to you by PCGS. The popular PCGS Coin Price Magazine Rare Coin Market Report is back and free to all PCGS Collectors Club members and authorized dealers. This bi-monthly companion magazine to the PCGS online price guide and mobile app will feature 140 pages of coin pricing information as well as articles written by respected numismatists. On this episode of the Coin Week podcast, we talk to recently retired U.S. Mint sculptor engraver Don Everhart. We talk about his career at the Mint, what he learned along the way, and whether the United States Mint should go the way of other foreign mints and ask Congress to give the Mint the authority to design its own numismatic programs. You'll hear what Don has to say next on the Coin Week podcast. Hi, Don. Happy retirement. And thank you for joining me on the CoinLink podcast. Thank you, Charles. So are you happy to be a private citizen again and no longer duty-bound or beholden to the giant bureaucracy of the U.S. Mint coin-making factory? Well, I'm glad that I don't have to commute anymore, and I'm glad I don't have to get up at 4.30 anymore. Uh, but I do miss some of the people that I worked with, and, uh, you know, there, it was pros and cons in, in the decision-making process, but um, I figured it was time. Obviously, during your tenure at the United States Mint, it produced more coin designs than it had at any previous point in American history. But given that operational tempo, what was your day-to-day work like as a sculptor engraver? Well, um, personally, I normally get in around 6 o'clock, and uh, usually that's before anyone else does, so I try to take care of things that I can do, you know, without being interrupted. But uh, normally, you know, if we have design work to do, I work on design work, and, um, you know, if I have sculpture to do, I work that in. I generally like to do the creative work in the morning because that's when I'm sharpest and then save, you know, some of the, the less uh, creative stuff, you know, for the afternoon, like, Sculpting to me is, is pretty much automatic, so I don't have to think a whole lot about that, but designing is a different um, animal, and it takes a lot of concentration and more creativity, I think. So, um, you know, that interspersed with meetings all day long is, is what my schedule was like. Do you still prefer to sculpt by hand on plaster? Yeah, yeah, I do, Charles. Um, I was I, I, That's how I learned the art from way back in the Frank Lament days, and um, – I recently acquired enough skills to work with um, ZBrush to do edits on my on my sculpt when they were needed, but um, I won't ever start a, a sculpt in a, in a digital format because you know it's at my age it's it's like what's the point of changing now when I've been doing this for you know 40 plus years the traditional method and it's been working for me. In a nutshell. Being familiar with both processes and knowing artists who work in both media, what are the pros and cons to each design method? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Um, generally, I feel that in, in my case uh, and in a lot of other cases that I've seen, not all of them, of course, but the, I feel that there's more of a, I don't know, a human emotional touch to uh, the artwork that's done by hand. Uh, uh, you know, I, I like being able to, you know, hold the clay, hold the tools, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it's just kind of, in, in my um, experience, it's been kind of removed 
to actually sculpt on a computer. It's not familiar with me, but um, I generally like to do the sculpture in the uh, in the traditional method where I use you know clay and then I cast it into a plaster. And uh, that's what I'm most comfortable with, and that's what I've gotten the best results with. However, I will say that um, for for doing digital edits, it's a lot easier, a lot quicker. If I was to change something in plaster, I may have to go back and recast it into another negative and then into another positive to get the results I want. But in uh, the digital format, I can just put it up on the screen and make, you know, the tweaks that I need to do, and they're done in 10 minutes. So, you know, I, I see that there are advantages and disadvantages to both approaches um, and some people you know that are more versed in the uh, digital realm are, are very good at what they do and, and I would not suggest that they work traditionally at all but um, for me given my experience um, it's it's really been uh, a lot more productive for me to work in the traditional method and then do the limited edits that I can do uh, digitally um, and that seems to work for me I was at the mint last year and I was able to visit the engraving department or looked at the uh, 1964 Morgan dollar hubs that were recently revealed as being held in the mint vault. And while I was there, I had a chance to talk to Joe Minna at his desk. And he was talking to me about the benefits of working digitally. And he walked me through the process of editing and design on the computer. He was adding and taking away detail and texture using these preset texture brushes which he applied like one would, you know, use a paintbrush tool on Photoshop. Which speaks of what you're saying about how, you know, the way software makes it easy to make these edits. But one of the things that we were talking about uh, in design of a coin or metal is something that I like to call hide and seek. This is, uh, you know, when an artist implies a detail on the relief that isn't really fully rendered. Uh, because of space, scale, or height requirements, you know. It's so so these details get alluded to. And uh, you see this a lot in the designs of Laura Garden Fraser or Adolf Weinman or Augustus St. Gaudens. But you don't really see it much these days. Uh, Joe Minnett told me that part of the reason for this is that designs now have to be very precise in order to be properly cameo frosted when proofs are struck. Uh, are collectors' desire for proof versions with frosted devices limiting to what the artist can do with the design? Well, um, I think that it really depends on experience and the, uh, um, the level of, uh, of talent that the user of the, the digital um, uh, techniques has. I mean, I've seen some just unbelievable sculpts that were done digitally um, that just really were, were just exceptionally done. Um, again, myself, uh, I don't have the experience to do that, but uh, I think Joe is probably the most well-versed um, of the uh, staff as far as working digitally. He works totally digitally. He does not work in, um, to clay, in clay and plaster. But, you know, I, I think it really comes down to, you know, the, um, the talent of the uh, individual sculptor that's doing it and their experience level. What was it like working at the mint engraving department when the uh, production methods shifted from hand tools and plaster design to computer-based design? Well, in, in our department, um, which I can really only speak to because that's where I have the most experience, I mean, there was some resistance because, you know, when I got there, um, nobody was working digitally. 
And when I left, um, I was pretty much the only one that was not until I, I did finally learn how to do the um, the edits, uh, you know, in a very limited sense. But um, I think, you know, gradually people saw that there are uh, great advantages to uh, the digital aspect. Um, again, like when, I, like when I said about doing um, edits on on plasters and things, uh, I mean, I generally myself, I, I kind of resisted it in the beginning, but um, as I as I moved along uh, in the uh, department and in my experience there, I I took up the uh, the digital to a limited extent, and I saw that there were definitely advantages, um, not only in you know time amount to to do you know edits and things, but um, you know it just really streamlined the operation a lot, and and I don't think that there's any more uh, resistance, so it's pretty much an accepted. Uh, thing to do right now as far as um, sculpting. And, and you know what? It's just a, another tool in the toolbox. Um, it's just another way of of getting from point A to point B. And, you know, I think the more tools you have, the better the chances are that you're going to be successful in, uh, you know, finishing off uh, a piece that, you know, might need just a little extra in the way of edits or something like that. It's just, like I say, it's another it's another tool that we have. The quality of the work is what matters the most, and and if you can get that traditionally or digitally, it doesn't matter to me. It's just you know the final product is what's most important. Before you worked at the United States Mint, you worked at a private mint, the uh, the Franklin Mint. What would you say the difference in the approach that you were able to take working at a private mint, where I assume that the requirements on an artist are a little looser? as opposed to the U.S. Mint, where designs must be first described by Congress and sometimes in great detail about what the design has to look like, and then the potential designs are vetted and manipulated before being settled on by a committee in the Treasury Secretary. Yeah, there there is that. Um, I mean, you learn to adapt to that after a while, but um, when I worked at the Franklin Mint, basically I didn't really do a lot of design work. I, mostly they would hand me a design and say, here, Don, sculpt it. Um, because we had a design department of which, you know, I was not really in that department. I was in the sculpture department. So uh, gradually I started doing more designs there, but really the bulk of the design, coin design that I've done really only happened when I started at the United States Mint, um, where I've done literally thousands of, of designs. And um, compared to the amount of sculpts I've done, you know, it's a small a small percentage of sculpts to uh, to designs, and um, I think that's the main difference. I mean, it, it was a different time back then, so like everything was different. Um, but generally, as far as my approach to sculpting, you know, I was really learning in that stage when I was at the Franklin Mint. That's the first sculpture I ever did. I graduated with a painting degree, and I kicked around um, for about a year or so after I graduated, and then wound up at the Franklin Mint. And actually, I started as like a layout uh, design um, on, you know, for mechanicals and, uh, you know, the advertising that they did. And it wasn't until I was there for a year that I decided that, well, you know, this really isn't working for me. I need to do something more uh, artistically. Um, so I thought, you know, while I'm here and I have a foot in the door, why don't I try out? Because I've been watching the uh, the sculptors, um, you know, I take a break or lunchtime, I go see what they were working on, and, and I was really intrigued by you know, a new this new medium that I had never had any experience with and never in my wildest dreams would I ever have thought that my career would take the turn that it did, but it did as a result of working at the Franklin Mint. 
I um I started out a couple they gave me a couple tryout jobs and then they hired me on the third one. So I went from being a pay stuff artist doing mechanicals into being one of the sculptors literally in a day. And uh, that's what I call my master's degree. That's where I really learned how to do this stuff. I was doing between 50 and 60 sculpts a year at the Franklin Mint. And, um, and, and again, that's where I really learned how to do it. When I look back at some of the early sculpts I did, I thought, wow, did this ever get approved? Uh, you know, because I've, I've, I've really developed my own skills over the years. And anyone that's been in the business for as long as I have certainly should have developed their skills over the years. But, you know, that's, that's the main thing I took from the Franklin Mint. There was a lot of experience that I gained there. And then after I left the Mint, I worked for 24 years as a freelance artist, and I did all kinds of work from, from coins to toys to giftware to uh, installations to life-size figures in bronze and really had a, a, a more rounded experience as opposed to just doing coins and medals. And then when I got to the United States Mint, you know, I did really just, just coins and medals. And I think I really honed my design skills there as opposed to, you know, just being a sculptor. Uh, I became more of a designer slash sculptor. And, you know, I take a lot of pride in the designs that I've done um, at, the, at the United States Mint. Uh, I, like I say, I, I think I really learned a lot by just by doing. I mean, when I've done over a thousand designs at the Mint, and, and I haven't kept track of them, but I'm sure it's well over a thousand uh, you've got to learn something. And, you know, I believe that I, I really, you know, uh, I really developed my skills at, at the uh, United States Mint for designing and sculpting. I'm a better sculptor now than I was 20, 30 years ago, and, and I should be. Please humor me with this question. So if you can remember back to your earliest executed sculpts, what would you say that you learned over your career that would help you, you know, in looking back, improve that design? Well, I learned a lot more about uh, the figure and anatomy. When, when I went to school, they really didn't teach much of that. You know, we had some figure drawing, but, but mostly you were on your own if you wanted to learn the figure. And you know, through many, many designs, you know, I had to, like, improve that skill. Uh, another thing that I, I felt that I, I learned a lot uh, was I applied what I learned um, when I was in college. Let me backtrack a little bit. I started out in college as an advertising major, and I went for two years in advertising when I realized that I really didn't like it. I wanted to do fine art, so then I changed my major to painting. But even though I changed my major, I learned a lot from those advertising two years. I learned a lot about type and typography, and I tried to apply that when I was doing my designs at the U.S. Mint and not just use, you know, some uniform line of, of, uh, of a typeface and not do anything to it. I, I tried to change, you know, different different sizes of different letters and, you know, look back at some of the old masters' uh, medals and see how they handled type and try to, you know, really jazz it up a little bit so that it just wasn't boring looking. Um, so, yeah, that, that's that's a couple of changes that, um, that I feel I developed uh, in my time there. Who were your favorite artists that you worked with at the Mint or before? Who really stood out to you as phenomenal? Uh, there were a number that I, I worked with. In, when I worked at the Franklin Mint, um, I, was, I, I came in at the tail end of Gilroy Roberts' career, and I used to go into his office and, and watch him. He was sculpting birds at the time, and he was always very helpful and, and friendly and, and, you know, gave me a lot of advice. Um, I also have always been a fan of Philip Nathan. He's a British sculptor, and um, I always was, just idolized his work. 
Um, Jim Farrell was very good at the Franklin Mint. Um, as I got further on at the United States Mint, you know, I worked with John McConty, who was just a, a wonderful sculptor, good, great designer, and, and Phoebe Hempel, who I consider one of one of the greats that will go down in history. Um, just her work is just superb. So you know, and I try to. I try to take a little bit from each person, learn, learn a little bit from each person and apply it to my own work. And I think that that's how you can become, you know, more versatile and well-rounded in your career. You know, when I see him, I always tell John McCanny that his uh, architectural designs are very wonderful. And I agree with you about Phoebe Hempel. I think she is one of the most underrated artists to ever work at the United States Mint. Her sculpt this year for the high relief gold coin and silver medals among the finest portraits ever issued by the men. Yeah, I don't know that she's underrated. I think more and more people are finding out about her. And as she, you know, um, extends her career at the United States Mint, that's only going to, you know, uh, develop even more. What were some of your favorite designs that you authored? Uh, well, I always liked my um, Nevada State Quarter with the uh, the horses on it. It was the first design I had selected, and um, it's still one of my favorites. Uh, I like the baseball coin, um, but generally I'm a medalist at heart, so I think some, some of my favorite designs were, were congressional gold medals that I did. For example, uh, the Suchi medal, uh, both sides are my designs, and the, the uh, Constantino Brumidi medal, um, both sides are my designs. I'm very proud of those. Also very proud of, of the uh, March of Dimes reverse that I did a couple years ago um, for a couple of reasons. Um, it incorporates a lot of my family into it. My daughter had a baby on June 8th in 2012, and um, the day he was born, his father came in and held him in his hand. And my daughter is a photographer. She's very well known, and she's really good at wedding and child photography. She took a picture of him. So... I, I had this picture in the back of my mind. I was working on the March of Dimes uh, designs, and I was just not coming up with anything. And for some reason, this, this photograph that she had done of, uh, of her, her uh, husband holding Jack, the baby, in his hand came to my mind, and I, I called her and said, do you mind if I use this for a design? She's like, no, go right ahead, please. So I did, and, you know, I did some modifications to it, but, uh, you know, I adapted it to the, um, to the coin uh, parameters, and uh, it got chosen, and, you know, it's got quite a backstory to it, and I know that it was very popular, and it actually won Coin of the Year last year for Most Inspirational. So, yeah, that was one of my favorites. Yeah, and, and you know, I didn't make a lot of that when, when the coin came out because, really, it wasn't about my family. It was about the March of Dimes, but now that it's been said and done, you know, I think I, that we can we can talk about that. I'm also very proud of the um, 2016 National Parks Gold. Again, they were both sides of mine uh, for the uh, – uh, I did uh, Yosemite Park with John Muir and um, Teddy Roosevelt uh, looking to the left. And then the, uh, the reverse had the National Parks logo superimposed upon a landscape. Um, so I, that um, – the, both those designs worked very well for me because they kind of incorporated the park into the subject matter, not only the, um, uh, the logo – which, like I say, is superimposed over a background that could have been taken, you know, and incorporated into the logo. But not only that, but on the obverse, both of the portraits kind of fade into the landscape, you know, implying that they were, you know, part of the park from the beginning. So uh, I think that that one 
really worked on a, a number of levels. So when you first came on board at the United States Mint and it, you know, got your first design struck, did it feel different to you, you know, ha having your art on an official coin in the United States? I mean, does it feel different to have your art reproduced on such a massive scale? Or even maybe when you receive a coin and change that you created, did that impact you differently than say, you know, some of the other projects that you saw fully realized as objects? Um, you know, it did in the beginning. Um, when I did the um, Nevada State Quarter, one day I was out at lunch and I got the quarter and change. This is when I first got to the Mint. And I said to the vendor, you know, I designed and sculpted this. And he just looked at me like, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm sure you did. So I haven't ever done that again. You know, I get that. I get that anecdote from every designer I have ever talked to. So that must be a, a universal experience for coin designers. I don't know if you're aware of this, uh, and I don't know if I had your job, whether I would care too much to go into the uh, coin media and the internet and read what people had to say about my work, especially people in the hobbyist community. But, uh, but to give you a little bit of perspective on things, the American Numismatic Association members, at the time of the release of the St. Gaudens $20 gold coin or the Peace Dollar, or the reverse of Felix Schlag's Jefferson Nickel, wrote many letters decrying these designs and talking about how poor they were and how if only the opinions of trained numismatists are taken into account, that the designs could be much, much better. But then, you know, for these designs, as time went on, they became familiar and, and people's opinions about them changed. So given that things haven't changed all that much in the past hundred years when it comes to coin critics in the hobby community, do you pay attention to what people have to say about your designs or do you stay away from it? Well, I personally just, I can't say I avoided it consciously. I just really never was that interested. I, I knew that a lot of the comments are always negative. Um, but I think, you know, when you're in the position that I was, you, you just learn to take that with a grain of salt because you're not going to please everybody. It's impossible. Um, so, you know, I just tried to, like, do what I felt was the best work and, and please myself and, and not worry about the comments because, you know, and the Internet these days, you can be anonymous and you can really rip somebody and there's no consequences to, to the person that's doing it. So, you know, it's kind of easy to do, um, whereas a face-to-face -face meeting, maybe you wouldn't get the same comments. But basically, I was never interested in, in some of the, the petty comments that were made on blogs and things like that. Um, I, I just really never followed that. <laughs> well, take that, collectors. Yeah, no, but, you know, you make a great point, you know, and I agree with you. Yeah, but I want our audience to realize and keep in mind that every coin design that comes out, you know, when it's new, it will seem unfamiliar and perhaps awkward. Uh, but that with time, a truly good design will stand out and endure. Uh, but it's good to know that coin designers at the men aren't staring at computer screens all day, waiting for modern coin collector 629 on the forums to post a comment about how much he thinks the stars on Liberty's head are too big. Right. And, and you know, to, to really, you know, uh, develop the idea a little bit further, I think the vast majority of comments that I, I, I did read when I was, you know, for some reason looking for them was, were positive. But, you know, you get that occasional one which, uh, you know, would really rip your design or you or whatever. But, you know, I think after a while, in, 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 uh, as far as being a United States Mint engraver, 
you just kind of take it with a grain of salt. You know what it is, though? I, I think it's, it's that it's a public process. You have the CCAC and the CFA. Uh, and so what typically happens is that we get to see. So what typically happens is that we get to see all the candidate design sketches before the committees make their selections. And oftentimes there's some very elaborate, very interesting designs that don't get selected. And I think this frustrates people. But something people need to keep in mind is that an elaborate pencil rendering on a large canvas does not always translate well onto a coin. So can you explain why that is? Uh, I think um, there's a number of reasons for that. Is that you know a lot of artists um, they try to put too much in a coin. When you look at the palette, it's very small. So I think that when you're designing, you have to keep in mind that you want something that's iconic and simple and, and explains your point very clearly that, so that you recognize it immediately. You don't have to search around, look for clues here hidden in the foliage or whatever. It's, a, it's an iconic, simple image. And I think a lot of artists uh, don't grasp that immediately. I mean, take, for example, our AIP. They are, are really a bunch of great artists and designers, but mostly they're illustrators. And, and uh, I don't know that any of them that do sculpture uh, but they do really great designs, but sometimes, you know, they, they do illustrations and they're not really suited for, um, uh, you know, coin design. And, you know, people on my staff and myself included have done that. So it's not just something that, you know, AIP artists do because I, really I have nothing but high regard for, for those artists. Um, I know them personally. I know their work without even seeing their initials on it. And I have great respect for them and all the other artists I work with. But it's just sometimes it's it's just easy to fall into the trap of putting a lot more information in than what you need. And, you know, I've been guilty of that myself. But um, if you try to keep the point in, in your mind that it's just a small canvas, even the largest coins we do, and even a, a three-inch metal, it's a small canvas. And you, you have to design accordingly, I think. What in your mind are the ideal characteristics of good coin design? Well, again, I would go back to simplicity. I, I think that, um, you know, the, the font that you use, the lettering you use should complement the subject matter. Um, you know, if it's a portrait, it has to look like that person. And, and if it's another idea that you're trying to um, convey, uh, it needs to be concise. It needs to be distilled down to the absolute um, essence of the subject matter. So again, so that when you look at it, you immediately know what the artist was trying to convey. You don't have to like, you know, go into a guessing game and try and think, you know, how does the reverse relate to the obverse? They should complement each other. And, um, you know, that's, that's about all I can think of for that. When you look out and see the way that foreign mints are now creating coins with uh, all sorts of different types of designs, you know, and some licensed designs, you know, others are based on historical events or themes that reach out into the general public in ways that are sort of like what you did at the Franklin Mint in the 1970s. This, of course, you know, is much different than the way the U.S. Mint is able to operate because our coinage is determined by Congress. So it's much more limited in scope. You know, and oftentimes it's based on themes that are not market tested, but instead based on uh, one or two legislators' parochial interests. Uh, do you feel that the United States Mint, you know, in order to give collectors coin programs that they might really want, should work with the Treasury and Congress uh, to change the law regarding how U.S. Mint numismatic coins are made? 
Yeah, I, I think that's an excellent point. Um, you know, Congress does dictate to us, you know, uh, which coins and metals we would produce. And in a lot of instances lately, they're telling us what they want on them and how they want it done. But I, I think that, you know, a lot of um, uh, private mints and, and other foreign uh, mints don't have to uh, deal with that, those kind of restrictions, and they're far more liberated to do, you know, subject matter and different techniques than we are. Um, I, I do think that, that we are a bit conservative and that we could, you know, experiment a little bit more um, with, you know, different subject matter and, and different types of striking coins, like like the curve coin, the baseball coin was, was very popular, and I think the Apollo 11 will be also. But, you know, we didn't do that first. Other mints did that before we did. So, you know, I think we need to, like, probably be a little bit more creative in, uh, you know, not just the techniques we use, but the ideas and the subject matter. But, again, that a lot of that depends on, on what Congress tells us to do. And, and a lot of people don't understand that the Mint just doesn't sit there and, and say, okay, we're going to do a commemorative on, on breast cancer or whatever. You know, it's always um, dictated by Congress. So we have to work within those parameters. And sometimes they can be quite restrictive. Although, you know, a creative artist can open up those um, ideas and find new ways to to um, convey their ideas. So, it, you know, a lot of it comes down to the individual artist, too, and uh, I think that that's important. The one thing that strikes me is uh, cognitive dissonance when it comes to the very idea that Congress mandates these programs is when the CFA and the CCAC gets together and they discuss uh, – which of the designs would sell best with collectors, even though, you know, you look at some of these programs and there's no way that there will ever be enough interest amongst collectors or promoters in the secondary market for these programs to ever sell out. Do poorly conceived programs weigh on a mint artist's mind when it comes time to design these coins? Uh, well, as, as artists, as, as one of the engravers, I mean, we uh, personally, I, I may not, be, I may not totally relate to some of the subject matter that's um, uh, not only suggested but, um, you know, asked for by Congress. I may not relate to that personally, but I have to come up with something nevertheless. And, you know, that's something I think every artist faces when they get a commission is how do I, how do I create something that's interesting um, to the subject matter and, you know, I'm not that maybe interested in it. So, you know, it's it's something that you have to, like, overcome. And I think for me, it's a trial and error thing. When I come up with a design, hardly ever do I come up with one immediately. It's usually I might have 20 iterations as, as I, I, you know, I, I refine my ideas and, you know, my drawing and everything. It, it starts out very uh, vague and rough, and then I gradually hone in on it till I have what I hope is, is a, a nice sharp point at the end. And, uh, you know, it's that iconic, simple image that I'm trying to convey. Um, but, yeah, it's sometimes difficult to relate to certain subject matter. I mean, we all have our preferences. And, you know, personally, I can't put dinosaurs on every coin. So um, I have to learn how to, uh, you know, to do um, things that maybe aren't my my strength, you know, my, my strong suit. But I have to do it nevertheless because that's my job. So at this point, are there any unpublished uh, Don Everhart coin designs that are slated to come out in the next year or so? Well, um, 
I don't know. When I left, I had done designs for the uh, America the Beautiful for not, for 2019, um, and I know that I, I had I had some strong designs in there, but I don't know if they'll be picked or not. So that's a possibility. Um, uh, I know that the uh, I, I sculpted the the World War One uh, commemorative, and I sculpted also the um, one of the uh, World War One medals that they'll be coming out. Um, that's all that I can think of right now. Uh, also, I did some designs for the uh, OSS, the uh, Office of Strategic Services, Congressional Gold Medal, and um, I don't know if many, any of my designs will be picked or not. So there's a bunch of them that are still in the running, but whether they're chosen at this point, um, I, I don't know until probably another month or so. Did you collect examples of your own work over the years? Well, I try to get... Um, ones, I try to get coins that I've designed and sculpted, but if it comes down to something like a, a gold or a platinum and I've got to pay $1,000 for it, I'm pro probably going to pass on that. But I try to get like the, uh, you know, the ATBs and, and, you know, the medals that I've designed, the congressional golds. Uh, if I like what I've done, I'll, I'll, um, I'll buy that because we, don't, we aren't given any samples. As, you know, men employees, we have to buy them also. So, you know, I, I'm, uh, I, I only have a, a very small fraction of the work that I've produced during the years that I actually have samples of. Because, like, when I'm freelancing, you don't always get the samples, even though you may be promised them. And like I said, some of the, the pieces that I've done for the U.S. Mint, like a, like a platinum, you know, I'm not going to shell out $1,000, $1,500 for a coin when, you know, I could be spending it on bikes or something like that. So I'd like to put you on the spot for my last question, and I'm I'm assuming that you might know the answer to the question, but you know maybe not, and it's okay if you know and or don't know, uh, or you don't want to tell me. So um, the question is, who sculpted the spaghetti hair versions of the Kennedy half dollar and Washington quarter? Um, yeah, I do, but th they were instructed. The artist was instructed to do that from uh, a higher up in the organization. <laughs> so, so, so we won't find out from you today, huh? <laughs> no, because I, I work with this individual, and I'm, I'm not going to, um, you know, try to place blame because they're only doing what they were instructed to do. Okay. Well, I appreciate you fielding the question anyway. It's very important. Uh, if you don't ask, you won't find out. Well, Don, uh, thank you for joining me, and congratulations to you on your great career, and I, I hope you can get out there and enjoy yourself on that bike. Well, I'm Charles, I'm not retiring from sculpture or design. I'm only retiring from the mint, so I'm going to continue to do artwork as long as I'm able. All right. Well, thank you again, and good luck. Thank you, Charles. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends or your coin club. Remember, you can download all 70-plus episodes of the Coin Week podcast for free from the iTunes store. For Coin Week, I'm editor Charles Morgan. Until next time, happy collecting.